0: This is the final validation and restoration of Job. We have walked a long journey in the path of, of Job. We have talked about the many blessings, I'm mean, sorry, the many difficulties, the trials, right? The, the, um, uh, the, uh, the evils, the circumstantial evils that have beset our Job, God's servant. And now coming to the end of this this tremendous book, we find ourselves looking at his restoration. And, you know, the word blessing simply does not fulfill or satisfy how to describe the finale of the book of Job. Think about his human loss. His servants, his friends, his children, his wife is gone. Think about the suffering of the body, right? He is ill. He's convinced at some point that he's going to die. His physical life is fading. He has pains constantly, constant itching or scraping of himself, right, as boils have busted out from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Think of the ostracism of family. We're going to find out in the end of Job here, Job does have extended family. Why haven't they come? And we'll have, I think, a guess at that. But he has been left out like a social pariah, sitting outside the city on the garbage heap. He's done. We have accusations from those that should be his friends and comforters. We have accusations of sin, of a of hidden sin, of, of, of not being the man that he is, calling him a hypocrite, demanding that he repent of stuff that he is convinced that he has not done. And so for Job to be restored and to call that God's blessing on his life, I think is an undersell. It's not just blessing. I think the term that I'm looking for to kind of uh, uh, punctuate what happens to Job at the end is vindication. Vindication. To vindicate, that's a verb, is to justify. Especially to justify against strong allegations of wrongdoing. This is Job. This is who Job is. He is a righteous man who has, yes, in the this, in this struggle of fighting for faith, has begun to complain. He's going to accuse God of being maybe, God, are you being fair in all this? The unrighteous are living well. And look at me, your righteous servant. God, are you aware of what is taking place? Or do you even care? Where are you? Shouldn't you be here? Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you answering? At least let me present my case. I mean, this is the complaint of Job. And is it sinful? Yes, it's sinful. But we pick up in Job 42, 7 through 17, just after the conclusion or the response of Job to God speaking of the monstrous and seemingly out-of-control evils that he personifies in like a giant behemoth. Or a dragon-like serpent known as the Leviathan. And God's entire point was, Job, do you have capacities to tame what is untamable? Because God does. And he redirects him. How does Job respond? Job responds, I'm going to read you his response in verse 42, verse 2. And I'll read the rest of Job's vindication throughout the rest of this chapter And then we'll pray. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Herein I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with. you, For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zilphar, the Namanite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to, his, to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, a thousand uh, female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Kaziah, the name of the third Karenhapok. And in all the land there were no there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this. Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to this fitting conclusion to the book of Job, Lord, Lord, help us to draw from it something deeper and not so superficial as simply Job held out until God rewarded him. Lord, we see in this so much more than simply a blessing or an earthly blessing. We recognize Job's struggle is a struggle for faith, not for health, not for the restoration of material things. And Lord, we join him when we find ourselves struggling with tragedy, with loss, with the the brokenness of this world with moral evil or circumstantial evil, whatever comes our way, that we find ourselves incapable of controlling, so helpless against the leviathans, And then like Job, would you turn our hearts and our attention to ref- repent from our self-centeredness, to look upon the God who is the God of all things and is perfectly powerful and has all things in his control with your sovereignty, not just remind us, but comfort us because you are our God and we can trust in you to hold our eternity in your hands. So Lord, as we look to Job's vindication, the ending of Job, Lord, may we look at a man of faith and recognize the great blessing of our God even in the midst of our tragedies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the ending of Job, right? Two primary, I think, movements in this last uh, couple, of chapter, uh, couple of paragraphs. One is God's vindication of Job, and the second is his restoration. And I'm saying that separately because I think on the one hand, verses 7 through 9, He's talking about, I think the scriptures are talking about God's vindication of Job as his servant, as his servant. It's interesting because if you think about this, if the scriptures, if Job ended at verse 6, right? Verse 5 and 6, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think we're left to draw our own conclusions to the degree that at least his friends might think finally finally job you repent it's about time you know you admit that you've been talking wrongly about god maybe not to the degree that we have been saying but clearly you have been in the wrong if scripture ended at verse six we would leave with job's fault his repentance but nothing more No, but it continues, and in fact, where it continues is almost surprising. It's a little surprising to us, but it must be shocking to the three friends. Because here they are, thinking that they are bringing a word of righteousness on behalf of God to rebuke Job for his hidden sins. But instead, they find themselves not only on the spot for being rebuked by God, but also having to look to Job to be the minister, the go-between, that would make things right between them and the living God. I, I think it's tremendously interesting, and that's like a vindication, especially in verses 7 through 9, is the right word. God vindicates Job. The servant is vindicated in verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Let me just say a quick word, because I think it's interesting. Like Eliphaz is called out as the leader of the three. And it's probably because he's the older, perhaps he has kind of been the leader. Maybe we might put it in terms of he has discipled these other two men. And this often happens, right? The the slight miss of a leader in the next generation or the one that he disciples would be a little wider miss. And then the one after him is a much wider miss. And we saw that even in the way that they addressed Job from the beginning and throughout the three cycles, didn't we? We saw, we saw Eliphaz, um, who's kind of approaching Job with almost a gentle judgment, right? He probes in his first round. Second round, he's saying, hey, listen, like God doesn't just do things out of the air. He does stuff because he's intentional. And by the third round, he's saying, you, you are being pompous and arrogant, Job. You are in sin, right? He's gentle judgment. Bildad comes a little stronger, he speaks of the idea of God being in control of all things. And as he is the creator and nature shows, he is very intentional. Only what he demands or what he expects that nature produces. And if that's the case, something is going on. Then and as the, as the two other cycles unfold, he says stronger stuff. You must be hiding stuff. You're looking at young women or you're taking advantage of the poor. There's some stuff that is going on. And then we have Zophar. So if you have missed the little bit of the mark with Eliphaz you have missed a little more of the mark in Bildad then by the time you get to Zophar he is the extreme judgment he comes at Job and says man I don't know but God is God and God is just and I know if God is just and this has happened to you something doesn't measure up then as the two other cyclists continue he doesn't even speak on the third but by the second he is speaking of hell and judgment of what the wicked deserve. And he's applying that to Job. All of it false. But there is a leadership here. There's a discipleship here that has gone from a little astray to a lot astray to plain out judgmentalism. It happens in those cycles. We have to be careful of ourselves. Whether we're leaning towards like, oh, God loves everybody. Let's just love everybody. Or God is just and he's gonna judge you and we need to point out he's gonna judge you, right? Like you lean too much in one direction then those that follow might lean a little bit further and there you go, you have the whole crew. And the Lord speaks to Eliphaz, the Temanite in particular and he lets him know, my anger burns against you and your two friends. This isn't mild, this isn't God going, hey, you know what, you guys kind of missed it. This is God saying, do you feel heat? Because my anger is on fire against you and your two friends. And he gives them the exact reason why you have not spoken of me. What is right as my servant Job has. I find that remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not surprised that God is saying that they haven't spoken. Right. Um, but I find it interesting that God says that his servant Job has spoken right. And I think this is what God means by that because at this point, remember, Job has repented, right? You know, Job has said that he has put his, his hand over his mouth right? He has, he has repented in dust and ashes. He, he despises the things that he has said that is incorrect. And so those things he has repented of. He has, he has sought the Lord's forgiveness. He has agreed with God that he has spoken falsely. And if you think about it, then God has redeemed him. God has forgiven him. God has canceled that debt. So as far as God is concerned, the things that matter most are what Job has spoken in the book about who God is, and those things have been right. Minus the complaints, which he has sought, I think, forgiveness for and repented of in the end. How about the friends, though? The three friends, led by Eliphaz, they have spoken wrong. So let's talk about that thing, because there's something between Eliphaz and the two friends and Job that in their speaking voices, in their arguments, if we might want to say it this way, in in their theology... Something has been different, and Job has been right, and friends have been wrong. So this is significant. In fact, in a lot of ways, right, we, I always uh, remind you that a, a complaint about the, the book of Job is that everyone knows the first two chapters and what happens to Job, and everyone knows the final few verses, that he receives double of everything. Right? And we forget that the majority of the book is struggling with the in-between. And the in-between of these cycles of, 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 of arguments, these debate cycles that go on, is, a, is an argument of theology, but not just theological acumen. They're all in agreement about who God is, that he is almighty, that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, that what is in Job's life, God is the one that has determined that. They all agree about those things. That part of their theology is not different. If I might put it to you this way, what is different about what they say is what resonates in their heart is when they speak about God in a way that expresses their faith or I'll use a different term that might help us, their confidence. It's not about theological acumen. It's about theological confidence. This is what Job Says when he is right. It, when Job lost all of his most precious earthly treasures, not, not just his material wealth, but his children, in chapter one, this is what Job says, verse 20 to 22. Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. blessed be the name of the Lord in all this job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing Job had lost every earthly treasure in a single day and his his theological confidence is to come and worship and to, to, to grieve that's the shaving of the head the falling of the well, that's not enough in round 2 by the time we get to chapter 2 God gives Satan permission to to you know let him just suffer physically let let him break out in boils let him suffer difficulty and when he when he struggles with all that is going wrong in terms of his physical, right? And remember we are physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, all holistically one. When you are not doing physically, you are often tempted to sin more, right? And if you are, if you are struggling with anxiety and mental struggle and, and pressure and, you know, and stress, that could show up in physical ways, right? We are all one. And for Job to go through the most difficult loss and then his own health to be failing so quickly, how would he respond? What is his theological confidence there? In Job 2:10, he says this: "But Job says to his wife, who says, "Maybe you should curse God and die." He says, "You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. He says, "Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil?" In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You notice that in both of those passages, not only does Job speak rightly about who God is and who I am, but, he, but in, in that, the author of the book of Job adds in both of those right afterwards a little comment that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He has spoken rightly about God. See, that, that's the entire point. He has a tendency to speak right about who God is. And then we even saw, as we were doing our worship set, Job 19. Job 19.25 is that famous passage, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. See, he is convinced that even though he will die physically, there is some way that with his own eyes, he will see the living God. There is a confidence, a theological confidence that Job exudes that is at the core of what we might call his faith. He believes these things about God, not just knows them. It's not just he's spitting facts. He's not just saying, oh, God, yeah, powerful, sovereign, creator of everything. I got that. I got that. Check all these boxes. No, he is confident about that. He knows who God is, and he knows this is from the Lord. But he can neither blame him or be upset with him, but recognize that even if he dies, if this is his end, and if the entire story goes a tragically different route, at the end, the Redeemer will be here. And I'm dead, but somehow I've got to be alive because I've got to see him with my eyes, with my own eyes. It's got to be me, not some poetic, I will see him, right? I will see him. He is convinced of this. This is his theological confidence. The point is that, his, that Job, foundationally, he does affirm God's sovereignty. All this is from his hand. He does affirm that God has a right to do as he chooses, right? God is God and not a man. And this is, this is faith, but it's not just an academic affirmation. It is he is confident about these things. And then when his confidence fades, he questions if God is exactly as he has always believed that he is. And when God reveals himself as being God, very God, and not a man, that's when Job repents in dust and ashes. There's only one that, is poss- that, that has the, the, the potential and the power to overcome all the monstrous evils of this world. There's only one. He has no rivals. There's only one that is wise enough, that is powerful enough, that is capable and perfect and Job recognizes that. What are the theological confidence of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? And we have to understand this because, because right, they have spoken that which, according to God, is not right, like his servant Job has. And it is enough that God would warn them strongly, severely, by saying that my anger burns against you and your two friends. Because you have not spoken rightly about me. So this is interesting because so many of the things that they have said, right, theologically speaking, are accurate. Like I said, they affirm God's sovereignty constantly. Job, this is happening because God has sent this. You realize that. Job says, of course I realize that. And they say, see, why is this happening? Job says, that's what I want to know. And they're saying, no, we already know. Because God is perfectly sovereign and he's perfectly righteous. Are those things true? They're absolutely true. If you take the the statements, right, of Job's friends throughout their cycles and they speak about God, you could pull them out and without any context, you could put them on a little card, right, and say exactly what they said and you would affirm that. Theologically, that's true. God is absolutely sovereign. God does cause all things to happen. God is always in control and God is only and always exclusively righteous. These things are all true, right? And yet, and this is what I'm saying, is their theological confidence goes a slightly differ, different direction. When they spoke wrong, it was in their false accusations and assumptions about how God works in this closed system that we called retributive justice. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Now, now, technically speaking, is that not true? That the God of this universe, he demands right? and he rewards right, and he demands right, and he punishes wrong. That is true, but that's not the entire system because if you press that hard enough, if you slam that button enough, right, what you get is you do good, you get good, you do bad, you do bad, and the oversimplification of that as a principle of life is at its best legalistic and at its worst is pure judgmentalism. Their confidence, theologically, is in a God that they are so convinced is so singularly simple. And understand this, right? When we speak about God's simplicity theologically, we don't mean that he is just on or off. We mean that he is simple in the sense that he's the pure essence of something. So when scripture says that God is merciful and gracious, you will not find a human being, a vassal, a king, A ruler in any time in history that can be as gracious and merciful as our God. There is no human version that can match the pure essence and simplicity of the depth of God's grace and mercy. And so when we speak about his judgment and his righteousness, similarly, there's no human being that can match it. There's no individual in history that could demonstrate right, right, in a humanly speaking kind of limited way because he is infinite in his justice and his righteousness. He's the pure essence of that. That's the simplicity of God, that whatever he is, he is in full, every attribute in full. That's the point. It doesn't mean that you can boil him down to one or two points. And the overemphasis of one, because, right, because I think if you're not careful, like, like Eliphaz, Bildad, so Zophar, you might be leaning towards this side that says God is very righteous, very holy, very just, and those are all true. The degree of which, even as I say that, I probably don't know the full depth of his eternal holiness, justice, and righteousness. But if I lean that way with an overemphasis, I could say, see, that's why you shouldn't do this. That's why you shouldn't watch this. That's why you shouldn't tie your shoes this way or you need to wash your hands in a certain way and let it drip off your elbows, right? There's a certain number of ceremonial things you have to do in order to please God because God is very intensely this way and we'd be missing the mark. Similarly, and if it helps you, right? If that's not you, but you lean on this side, God is just love and grace. You could do that because he is, and to a degree that none of us can fully fathom because we are not eternal in our minds with the full capacity of understanding what it means that God is infinitely all of these things, is the pure substance of this, and is just simply love, grace, and mercy. But I can lean this way in such a way that it defines God to where I'm saying stuff like, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you do in a worship service, right? Because God loves you. It doesn't really matter what decisions you make. God, God is that gracious. It doesn't matter what you do after you've made your profession of faith. You live what you live. You do what you want. You have, you can enjoy life. I'm, I'm saying if you even if you live in sin, God's love is enough to cover it all. There's something wrong with this, right? You sense that. There's something wrong with this. You sense that. That's what I'm talking about. There's a theological confidence. If we said, what is their theological confidence? I think what you come away with when you examine the statements of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, it's not statements that are absolutely false. There are some statements like the accusation of Job that is absolutely false. But what they're leaning in on is God is this way. And so clearly that means that you must be this way. They're just making the overly simplified this equals this, this equals that. If God is just and sovereign, you are suffering. Then what that spits out to me is getting. This is where they are mistaken, right? There is a narrow-minded fault finding that we call judgmentalism. And it's not just in Job that this is condemned. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, Judge not that you not be judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye you hypocrite first take out the log in your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye what I love about that is Jesus doesn't say your brother doesn't have a speck it's just all you bro Is you with the log. He says, no, your brother does have a speck. But in comparison, you've got a bigger issue. Take care of yourself so that you would be useful. He doesn't say, no, they're fine. You're the one that's messed up. He's saying, well, you're all messed up in different degrees. But the judgmentalism, the legalism, that's not helpful. And he is clearly speaking particularly against the religious legalistic Pharisees and scribes. How appropriate, because that's exactly what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are in the Old Testament. They have a closed system of retributive justice. You, get, you do this, you get this. You do this, you get this. And that's, it's as simple as it gets. So Job, I could tell you exactly what your life is, because God is sovereign and he is righteous. He deals harshly with sin, and look what's happening to you. He's dealing harshly with your sin. Unfortunately, Job is not the unbelieving He is not the unfaithful. He is not the the absolutely deserving sinner and rebel against the living God. He is God's friend. By misapplying theologically true statements in a way that suggests that they know God, that they have a beat on God, and that God demands this exact thing from your life, they have impugned God. His character. And his work. So in the battle of theological confidence, God is making a clear declaration in your system, in terms of what you're trusting in, human righteousness, human explanations for why I work. That's bankrupt. In fact, that's speaking wrongly of me. And my anger burns against you. Job has spoken rightly about me. And thus, Job, God's servant in his theological confidence is vindicated. And so Job, the the end of Job and God's statement here puts to rest the entire argument. All that the friends have said, worthless in terms of what confidence, what faith comes from their theological convictions. Their conclusions are worthless. But Job has spoken rightly. Secondly, the servant He's restored. And what I mean by that is he's restored into his service. Look at verse 8 and 9. Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That's the second time God said that. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namanite, went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I, I want to point out something throughout all the book of Job, but particularly in this, just this passage. In this passage, God refers to Job as my servant Job four times. Right, The last part of verse 7, three times in verse 8. In fact, throughout the entire book of Job, whenever God speaks Job, his name, he calls him my servant Job. He doesn't just say Job, you know, that Job. Which Job? You know, the guy in the east, he's really rich. You know, he doesn't have to define him. He says clearly that he is, one, that he is my Job. He belongs to me. And secondly, that he is my servant, Job. He is a servant unto me. It's an affirmation about who Job is, his identity to God, from the very beginning in the opening chapters of the book of Job. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He is mine, he is my servant, I treasure him. That's the way God speaks of Job and that's how servant is the right term, right? And it must have stung Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar to hear that not only has has Job spoken rightly of God but this is the first time God has spoken to them about Job and he calls Job, my servant Job and then he tells them, you need to repent Now go get sacrifices and go to my servant Job. How the tables have turned, how humiliating it must have felt for them to recognize not only have they spoken falsely about Job, God's servant, but they have spoken falsely about God himself. And then Job takes on the ministry role of the mediator, the one that will stand between sinners and a holy God. What is required of these sinners is a sacrifice, is intercession by the mediator, so that they might receive forgiveness of their sins. And that's what we see unfold. God says, take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. God has told them what they have done wrong, and he says, I'm going to give you a chance to be forgiven of your wrong. So go and go get seven bulls, seven lambs, or seven rams, right? And, and I, I'm not sure what the deal with that number is. There are some who think that number seven is particular. Maybe I know that number is 23 when when Balaam. Right? speaks to Balak, and he's saying, okay, we need to make an offering to the Lord. He says, build seven altars, prepare for me seven bulls, seven rams. So pre-Mosaic law, maybe that's, that's what it was. You offer seven, and that's, that's the number of how many of these that you offer as a sin offering unto the Lord. In any case, the key is that there is a sacrifice, then there's intercession by the mediator. It says, and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer. It is interesting because as Albert Barnes points out, right, it's presumed that Job would be ready to do this and would not hesitate thus to pray for his friends. I mean, but we might forget, right, that, wait, weren't these guys just literally a couple of speeches earlier saying, Job, you know, you are a fool and you're going to burn in hell because you have some hidden sin and you won't confess it and God knows. They walked away saying, well, listen, all I could tell you is God knows right? And you're going to get yours. Like for, it's, it's assumed that God is, God is not prepped Job as far as we could tell. He has literally turned from, you guys have sinned. And Job is like saying, okay, Lord, thank you. I, I'm vindicated, right? I, I thought, I thought I had not sinned in a way that deserved this, right? And even as Job is thinking about that, that God is on my side and he's vindicating me, God, he, God literally says to the friends, now go get sacrifices ready and Job's going to take care of you. There's an assumption on God's part that Job is ready to just go, okay, you know, still got stuff, you know, busting out all over me. Still struggling to get up and stand up and walk well. But if this is what the Lord says to do, this is what I am most willing to do. There is something about Job that God assumes he would do that immediately, and he does. And they do what God tells them to do. And Job prays for them. And God says, if he prays for you, if you offer sacrifice and he intercedes for you, I will accept this prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. For again, and he emphasizes it twice, right? For emphasis, You have spoken of me what is not right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, verse nine, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namanite, they went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. I I love this. Because what is the path of the sinner here? One is the conviction of sin. God tells them that they are in sin. There's a necessary, right, confession, a repentance, a seeking of atonement. But they need somebody to step in between. They need a mediator, someone to offer a sacrifice, someone to pray or to intercede. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is this not a clear and wondrous, right, aiming of these things towards Jesus Christ, our great mediator. It is not the picture of the gospel painted for us thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene, right? This is exactly what the gospel is. Sinners recognizing their sins, agreeing with God, that's confession, turning from their evilness, right? Repenting, trying to do what is right, and seeking atonement, asking for forgiveness. But we need someone to step in a mediator, a redeemer, someone to take care of the sacrifice, someone to offer a prayer and a begging of salvation for this fool. And that is Jesus, our savior, our mediator, our redeemer. This is the picture of the gospel in terms of the servant, Job. I think it's worth noting also that the first thing that God does in terms of Job and his restoration is not the restoration of his health, his possessions, and his family. It is a restoration of his ministry, right? A spiritual service. And before all the blessings come back, before all the good things in the long life is pictured and established and is a testament to God's graciousness in Job's life in his temporal good, God restores not just fellowship, but ministry, spiritual purpose, and usefulness. Job's life is a picture of all those things, right? I'm moving way too slow. That tends to happen in, in the book of Job. But that's God's vindication of Job, his servant, right? Verse seven through nine. Then the longer part, which surprisingly will be, The shorter part, it's God's restoration of Job. This is the section of his blessing, right? And you'll see how quickly this goes. The the shame of Job's story, like I said, is that so many of us just know the first two chapters and the final few verses. And so we're tempted to think that it's about Job's suffering and about his faith and endurance. And as a result of that, how God pours just blessing and stuff into his life, Right? Oh, you suffered so much. Let me give you double everything. And that's all we might draw from that. We might draw from the book of Job. If all we remember is the first two chapters and the last few verses, that Job suffered much because of that stupid Satan guy. And then at the end, God gave him double everything that he had to enjoy in this life. And we'd be so vastly off the mark. If we've been following all the arguments, the accusations, and complaints through 40 something chapters, we know that the questions are not merely material, physical. They are those, but they're also emotional, they're spiritual, they're existential, they're powerful. There's so much more at stake than just, I lost all my stuff. So that the danger of reducing this portion of Job or all of Job to just, he was cursed for a while, then he was blessed for a while, is to miss the entire point. Job's restoration does include his earthly fortunes, but has so much more. So verses 10 and 12 speak of the restoration of his fortunes. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, his earthly fortunes. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then in verse 12, he enumerates them. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep. And if you compare it side by side with Job 1, 3, right, there was literally half of everything mentioned, right? He had 14,000 sheep, Job 1, he had 7,000. 6,000 camels, 3,000 camels. 1,000 yoke of oxen, 500 yoke of oxen. And 1,000 female donkeys, 500 female donkeys. Exactly double. God has literally doubled everything that Job has had. Now remember, Job is before the Mosaic law and before the writing of Exodus. And if that's the case, then I find it interesting, right, that Exodus 22, as part of of the law, as a civil code, if a thief steals from you, if you have something taken from you by a thief, the restitution that he would give to you, the restoration required of him would be that he would pay you double of every material thing that he has stolen. And I'm not, listen, when I blaspheme it, when I say God stole from Job, what I'm saying is that that law isn't even codified yet, but God's principle in Job, and perhaps that's why he codifies it in Exodus 22, is that God restores to him double as an emphatic exclamation that Job did not deserve to lose all this. I think that's all it is, Right? And the emphasis on doubling is that, is, is that God is not just good and excellent, but he's restoring all things in its fullness and beyond, right? That's the restoration of Joe's fortunes. And I don't have that much more to say about that. He's rich. He was rich. Now he's crazy double rich, right? That's about all there is, right? But he's also restored in his relations. And this one's interesting. Look at verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they bred with him in the house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. I know the first thing that comes to your mind because the first thing that comes to my mind. Where have you been? Where have you been? This dude lost everything. His children, his family, his life, his fortune, his health, he is on the brink of death. Three friends come to comfort him and they turned out not to be very good at comforting Where have you been? Those that had known him and they bred with him in his house. It is an indictment against them, I think, but God doesn't say it that way and the scriptures don't give us that picture. God doesn't blast off on them as he does against Eliphaz and his friends. But you got to ask, well, where have these guys gone? Job 19, 13 to 14, Job says as much. And we kind of glossed over it then as kind of poetic, him waxing on. But he said, he has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. He's talking about an entire crew of individuals that should care for him and they stayed away. Why? Because they probably assumed that all of this, the same retributive justice principle, right? This oversimplification of God and his righteousness led them to believe well, Job must have done something wrong. God don't pour out punishment and pain like this unless you've done something wrong. And so they have stayed away. They have chosen to kind of disassociate. They viewed Job as a cursed of God. They esteemed him as stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. I chose those words purposely. And some of you guys know why. It's the same words of Isaiah 53, speaking of God's suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he is pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now they are back and fully restored to him. Job would be in his right to go, dude, no, no, no. No, you come, you come next month. I, I'm not ready for your foolishness. Where were you when I was dying on the dunghill, right? Where were you when all my children are gone? I didn't even see you at the funeral. He doesn't he receives them and the restoration of of family and friends and they do what they're supposed to do the second part of verse 11 they showed him sympathy and in him for all the evil that the lord had brought upon him into his life right they did what they should have done from the beginning a little late but nevertheless they showed up to know and to do what is right and then they gave him a gift of support. Each of them gave him a piece of money, a ring of gold, an, a, an ability to start over. They came and supported him. They praised and encouraged him. They brought sympathy and comfort to him. Oh. Friends, we need to do better than his brothers and sisters and his acquaintances and friends. We need to show up with sympathy and comfort as soon as we can, Right? not waiting for others to do it, not assuming that, you know, well, maybe there's something wrong here. We, we, we need to step into that space. Let that be a simple application, but an interesting one about his relations. God also restores Job's offspring, verses 13 through 16. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He means seven more sons and three more daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapok, bless you. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. I, I, let, me just, let me just say this, right? Because again, we're kind of rushing here. But he had children again. There, there's nothing that is said about a new wife or whatever. So I'm assuming that Job's wife returned And that they were they were, you know, from estrangement, they were reunited and restored. And then they had seven more sons and three more daughters. He had already had seven sons and three daughters. And some some individuals, some commentators find it unusual that God doubled everything of his possessions, but he didn't double the number of sons and daughters at the end. And I'm thinking, well, property and possessions are doubled because they're lost. They're lost and forgotten. The former children are not lost and forgotten. They are treasured by Job. They're redeemed of God. He still has seven sons and three daughters. And you will see them when the end comes. But these are seven new sons, seven new daughters. So his children are doubled in that respect, right? And and as they are doubled, the interesting emphasis that Scripture places on the children is not the sons, Right. In fact, the first set, sons and daughters, none of them are named. Only three daughters: Jemima, which means dove, elegant beauty, peace; Keziah, which is transliterated the Keziah. It's a bark resembling cinnamon, not as strong but pre- precious, and used in perfume. Right. And Karen Hapak, Hapak, right? Karen Hapak, which means uh, um, I, 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 the horn of Puck, which is a stibium, which I'm like, I'm like, what's stibium? It's a dye made from seaweed, and all of it is used to highlight, right, the edges of the eyes so that you kind of make, you know, the eyes beautiful. And I think the idea is that she's so pretty, her big old eyes, like it just kind of lights up the room, right? Big eyes, eye light, right? Um, Jemima, cause it, it, and it, the scripture just mentioned that they're so beautiful, and no, one, no women in the land was as beautiful as his three daughters Right, And then Job treats them equal to the sons. It's un- unprecedented in that ancient Near East and even in the Old Testament scriptures, right? It was the sons that received equal share of the blessing and the oldest received double. But the daughters are treated as sons. Again, is, is that, is that a, kind of a, a foresight, a foreshadowing of the things to come? I think so, First Peter 3. Our wives are joint fellow heirs. They receive everything that we receive in the things of the Lord, Right? They're joint fellow, full heirs as us, and so these are the daughters. But the question is, why does God emphasize these daughters? I don't know. Maybe there's something about daughters that is precious and speaks of tenderness and love and not just of continuing a name or a legacy, right? These daughters, because it's still the ancient East, they can get married off and take different names. They're gonna bear children that are not considered Job's children, right? Right? they his grandkids, sure, but they're someone else's family tree, a different tribe. They, they give him nothing but the tenderness and the affection of knowing that they are wondrous, delicate, and a gift from God to them. The sons who carry his name, who continue his lineage, but the daughters, in a way they are a one and done, but they are a precious one and done. They are so excellent that God puts emphasis upon them. And let me give you the last one, right? And we'll finish off. Job is redeemed unto eternity. Verse 16 and 17 says, Job lived 140 years. It says, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. What that's saying is he saw his sons and his son's sons, and it's not saying that was it and then, the author of Hebrews doesn't know his math and that's only three generations, right? He is saying that he saw unto the fourth generation. So instead of saying his sons, his son's sons and his son's sons, sons, right? He just said to the fourth generation. And then Job died an old man and full of days. He died. Let me say something, right? As, as a concluding to this, the ending comes at the very end. The reason why I'm saying that is the ending didn't come at the end of verse 16. Lived 140 years, all right? And then there's four generations. That's not the ending. The ending comes when Job dies. And whereas usually that is a tragic end, and we say, oh my goodness, Job died, an old man full of days. No, our, our confidence, our theological confidence informs us that that is not a bad thing. In fact, the, the true ending comes when Job is dead, and he sees the redoubling of his children when he goes And sees them again. There's a huge difference between earthly temporary blessings and our final reward. And the temptation is to think that the end of the story is when he gets all this stuff in this life, and you're absolutely mistaken. The end of the story is when Job goes home, when he sees God face to face, because the confidence, his theological confidence, that he has in who God is and that his Redeemer lives and that he will look upon his Redeemer with his eyes, that is true and satisfied when he sees God face to face. And in the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the absolute value and the reward and the goodness is not in that this life will be easier. It will not. It is in that one day we will see Christ face to face. And despite our undeserving, we have a right to stand in the house of God and to belong as his sons and daughters because we have repented of our sins, placed our faith in Christ, and have found gospel confidence that he would do everything that we cannot do. See, that's the end of Job. And Lord willing, if you place your faith in Christ, that's the end of you. I love how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at the end of Job, after all of this is said, everything that we read, it adds this little concluding side remark. And it is written that he will rise again and those whom the Lord will ra- with with those whom the Lord will raise up in that day. It, it's like the, the the translators put a little margin of note and said that it, it is written there's some oral tradition somewhere that says that Job will rise again. And he will be in the resurrection with all those that have placed their faith in God. And we would just add to that with greater accuracy, all those who have placed their faith in God, all right? Through Jesus Christ, his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the message of the book of Job and all that we have learned. And we treasure, Lord, every part of it. And Lord, we know that some of it is hard, some of it is difficult for us. But Lord, we hope that it has been an encouragement to our souls to think rightly about our God, about who he is, and the right place to place our confidence, the right way to think about him so that we stand for his grace, his mercy, and his righteousness. All of those things meeting in Jesus Christ. So help us to look to you, to trust in you, to live for you. And despite all the prevailing and uncontrollable evils of this world, to find our gospel confidence in you through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.